Good evening, dear brothers and sisters. It's a delight to be here once again with you. Uh, you can open in your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 1. Bring greetings from your extended family over at Grace Fellowship in Zealand. Uh, the Lord is just doing wondrous things among us. It's so exciting, and uh, we thank God whenever we think of you uh, for your sacrifice and investment and support and prayers for us. Um, God is good, and we're just experiencing that goodness and pray that you will continue to experience the goodness of the Lord here. Uh, a lot has changed since I was last here. I think I was here a year ago preaching to about eight of you, eight of you and a camera, and um, so it's nice to see so many of you and, uh, and to be here with you with my wife and our uh, child who's in the womb now uh, with you. So uh, the Lord is so good. We're uh, going to be looking at James chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, and as well as James 3, 13 to 18. Really, though, I'm bringing a message from the whole book of James. We're about to start a series through James at Grace Fellowship, and this message is seeking to encapsulate uh, one of the major themes of the book. Uh, but these texts will be appropriate to capturing that theme for us. So let's give our attention to God's Word. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And from James chapter 3, 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. For this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing and sharing of his word. Now, as the body of Christ, as the people of God, we desire to be a people that will continually grow in our faith, continually mature, growing up, as Ephesians 4 says, into the head, growing up into Christ, being fitted together, not staying as children and infants, but growing up, maturing in our corporate expression of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we want, and this is a message of the book of James here, is this message of wisdom working and permeating the community of faith 
that we might express a mature picture of what Christian community looks like. We're talking this evening about the marks of a mature Christian community, distilling this all throughout the book of James. So if you're going to be a flipper, you're going to be flipping around a lot in this book. We're talking about mature Christian community. Uh, It's important to understand a bit of background as we look at this. So this book of James is written most likely by Jesus' half-brother, James, who arose very early on in the church to be a leader in the church of Jerusalem. So he he rose to prominence in Jerusalem and was ministering to the believers there. But then about at the time when uh, Stephen was stoned and martyred, you remember, there arose a persecution among the church and the believers. And so what happened is that the believers fled. They had to flee this persecution, and they went out into the surrounding areas. And so James writes, saying that he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, that is this dispersed area, that some Jews had been living there for many years, but now a new group of people were leaving Jerusalem, fleeing into these areas. And what happened when this was occurring, we're told at the end of Acts chapter 11, is that the believers that came from Jerusalem, they came into these other villages and they shared the gospel with those Jews who were already there. And it says many of them believed. And so new churches are being formed in the surrounding area. Acts 1-8 is being fulfilled. The gospel's going forth from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But in this wonderful gospel advance, there are problems that come about very quickly in these newly formed churches. Because you see, there's very different groups of people here. You have these Jews who came from Jerusalem, believing now in the Lord Jesus, and they're extremely poor. They're fleeing with whatever they could. They don't have homes and jobs. They're really refugees, fleeing with almost nothing. James talks a lot about their poverty. But the Jews that had been living there many years and generations, they're established. They've accumulated wealth. James writes about merchants traveling around, establishing trade. And it seems, though we're not told all the details, but these factions in the church of the rich and the poor was like a powder keg. These two different groups of people with different priorities, different ways of seeing things, it was causing significant amounts of strife in the churches. Significant problems were arising. And so when we look at James chapter 1 and verse 2, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The idea here though we often think about this individually, which isn't wrong, the trials we experience, but James is preeminently thinking of this corporate trial, the, the church, the poverty of many of the saints, the conflict arising between different groups in the church is a pressure that the church needs to endure through. But it's a trial that produces particular temptations. These external trials of the political environment, this movement and migration of people, and then these different groups is creating a lot of pressure. It's trials that are tempting these believers to behave in very immature ways, ways unbecoming to sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so what's it going to take for this church to persevere in the faith, to stick it out, and come to what James says is perfection and completion? James wants these churches to persevere through their trials to come to perfection. This word perfection pops up throughout this book of James, and it has that idea of wholeness or completion or maturity. That is something that has grown to have reached the end, to have, to have that culminating effect. James is writing that this church might persevere through these infantile conflicts and trials and be a mature people, reflecting the wisdom of God in their local area. And what is it going to take for this church, these struggling churches, to come to this maturity? Well, he tells them what to do in verse 5. He says, If any lacks wisdom, let him ask a God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James knows the need of these churches is the spiritual, all-encompassing wisdom of God, that the wisdom of God would work and permeate the entire believing community and bear good fruits, the wisdom that comes from God. And we want to be a people who embody and reflect this same wisdom of God in a watching world. And what I want for us tonight is that we would collectively capture a vision for what a mature, wise, believing community looks like. I want our collective imagination to be captured with this picture of what does a mature body look like. So we'll have to look at what immaturity might look like, but what maturity would look like, that we can all be pursuing it together. We're going to be looking at what this mature community looks like and how we get there. And so we're going to discuss some different marks. So let's, let's begin by looking at a community of mature works. Mature works. You can look at chapter 1, verse 22, which says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. A fundamental conviction of James is that proper beliefs ought to result in proper behaviors. He says that our hearing needs to result in doing. Because otherwise, it's to engage in a form of self-deception. This religiosity without action is a way of deceiving yourself. Because you see, an immature believer can be one who loves good preaching, loves talking about the message, loves even discussing the nuances of theology and ethics, but doesn't allow it to progress from the head to the life, to the lifestyle, isn't living a life of continual repentance, whereas the mature Christian says, how does this apply to me? What is this calling me to believe? How is this calling me to behave as I seek to follow God? We deceive ourselves so easily, we, we fall into our own talk. Uh, you could imagine, say, an armchair sports fan, uh, let's just say an armchair football fan, and if this person who really loves the game, is engaged, could quote all the stats, knows all the strategy of the plays, um, you would think it inappropriate if they considered themselves a mature football player. You would say, well, sure, you know a lot about it, but you're not actually playing the game. You're just talking about it. So, so you can't consider yourself any great football player. 
So it is with us in the church. If it's just talk and spectatorship, that's a level of immaturity. But we're called to be engaged in the fight of faith, hearing the voices of our Lord and Captain, and applying it, living it out together. Hearing needs doing, and also talk requires action. So if we're going to be doing, we can't just be talking about doing, we need to be actually doing. Chapter 2, verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What James is saying here is that an immature religion comforts people with platitudes, offers to pray prayers that go unprayed, expresses condolence without actually offering support, speaks of action, but sits back to remain in comfort, thinks always, I'm sure someone else will get to it. I'm sure someone else will meet that need. Wanting the credit for knowing to do the right things, for being able to analyze the problems and solutions, but not actually taking the pains, the investment, to do something about it. I'm not sure if any of you have ever had a really sore tooth, and you worried that if you really took it seriously, there might be a significant cost of money and pain, and for fear of that actual investment and the potential suffering, you ignore it and you gloss over it. You maybe think, I'll floss a little more there, I'll brush a little harder, and I'm sure it'll be fine. That's what this sort of Christianity is that sees a problem but thinks, I'm sure it'll be all right. It'll, it'll take care of itself eventually. But a mature Christian sees those needs and is willing to embrace the mess, to embrace the emotional investment, the level of suffering, whatever that may be, to participate in meeting those, mean, meeting those needs. We don't want superficial fixes. But a mature religion is fundamentally others-oriented and merciful. Which is why James writes in 127 that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. It's really hard to have a lot of energy to waste on bickering and infighting and politicking when you're focused on investing yourself for the good of others, on the sorts of good works that give evidence of genuine faith, of a transformed heart. For a mature community is a word-applying, people-loving, brokenness-healing community, one that pairs hearing with doing, faith with works, words with deeds. This is a vision we should have of what mature works would look like among us. This is what we want to be striving for, to be a people that are working these works of maturity, not just talking, but doing. Mature works. But also a community of mature words. This is, gets a bit closer to home, a community of mature words. That's what we want to be. In chapter 1, verse 19, James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, 
Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This wise community that God wants to foster does not, cannot grow in the soil of pride and anger. Quickness to speak betrays a sort of personal arrogance, a quickness to think, I know what's right, I know what needs to be said here, and an unwillingness to truly consider the opinions of others. And the immature person is quick to get angry because they take every disagreement as a personal slight against themselves, as a cause for offense. Whereas, we see in this verse, the mature approach in conflict is a quickness to hear and a slowness to speak. That is, our mature interactions ought to be marked by an interpersonal humility, wherein we are considering others as better than ourselves, their opinions worthy of being heard, their heart worthy of being shared, and us being ready and desirous to first hear, to listen before we speak. And this applies not only to our direct interactions with people, but also our indirect interactions, what we say in our, in our houses and to our friends in private quarters. And we have to be so careful in this area because immature speaking can spread like a virus throughout the congregation so quickly. And so James has to tell the churches in no uncertain terms in 4.11 saying, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. In 5.9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. That's scary. James is saying that complaining and criticism can actually bring about God's judgment in a church. Complaint and criticism are really like poison in the lifeblood of a community. Poison that comes from our very lips. That's what James said in chapter 3, verse 8, that no human being can tame the tongue because it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not be so. These words of complaint and criticism, when we pour them forth, it's like pouring toxic waste into the water supply of the community. It comes from the source and spreads from house to house, going here, going there, causing illness in this home, sickening this home. It spreads unless when it comes to you, you're willing to turn off the water supply, not let it go any further. We must be on our guard. James, Jesus warned about the leaven of the Pharisees. It works throughout the whole lump. And the leaven, he said, was hypocrisy. And these immature words are also a form of, of hypocrisy. How are they a form of hypocrisy? Here's what James is saying. He's saying that if you're the type of person that is speaking and blessing God, saying, Lord, I love you, you're great, singing these sorts of words that we sang, speaking well of God, but then you go and you speak evil, you tear down people who are made in the image of God, there is a disconnect there. 
That's a saying something about God, but then treating God's people, God's image bearers differently. He says these things ought not be so. Blessing and cursing from the same mouth? How can that be? And the threat here is very serious. It's very serious. In chapter 126, James said that if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, that person's religion is worthless. Worthless. We, if you were to think of worthless religion, what would you think of? Maybe, you know, that, that old liberalism that denies all these things. Um, worthless re- religion is always out there, right? But James is saying that this unbridled tongue is evidence of a worthless religion. Wow, that's some scary stuff. We don't want immature speaking and words permeating our community, but we want that mature community which is marked by interpersonal humility, graciousness in our interactions, slowness to anger, and an unwillingness to speak against and tear down any brother or sister. This is again the vision that we want stamped on our collective imagination. A vision of a community filled with people who love to speak words of life, who interact graciously, humbly, preferring one another. We see these immature works and what they might look like. We see these immature words. But all this is really just symptoms of a deeper problem, a problem that goes all the way down to the source in the immaturity of our own hearts. Let's consider an immature heart. In chapter 4, verse 1, James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James is saying that the underlying source of these immature words and works come from conflicting desires. We all desire things. That idea of, I want what I want, I want to have it, therefore I'm willing to fight to get it. And I want something different than you want, who wants something different than what you want, and those desires, when they're at cross-purposes, they hit against each other, and they cause conflict. We all want different things. We have different competing visions of the church. We think, ah, the church should do this. The pastor should preach like this. Uh, The elders should implement this policy. They should promote this ministry. They should speak to this cultural issue and that. And our conflicting desires war against each other. And we want what we want so badly, we're willing to go to war for it. And what happens in a war? People die. The result is death. And it's not just that there's death that works in this. It's that you work death in yourself. That's what James says in chapter 1, verse 14. That when each person is tempted, that's when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. The outworking of these poisonous, self-oriented passions and desires is death. And James states in no uncertain terms that these disordered, self-willed desires are worldly, and more than that, they're demonic. 
Remember what we read from chapter 3, verse 14, that if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. There's two disorders of the heart here that James is speaking to. He calls them bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That's at the root of our law, a lot of our problems. And, and these translations have difficulty capturing the idea. The, the first terms for bitter jealousy is, uh, in the Greek, pikros zelos, which I say just because it sounds great, pikros. And zelos you'll recognize as zeal. And that is, it's a, a pikros zeal is a harsh zeal a bitter and censorious sort of zeal. And we, we know that zeal, passion, these things, it's not necessarily wrong in and of itself. We're called to be zealous for something that is good. But the problem is when it turns into a bitter zeal, into a harsh zeal. There is, it is true that some amount of earnestness is necessary often to get the ball rolling, to, to see action happen, but it can't, you can't let the temperature get turned up too much where it becomes a harshness, right? How, not many like drinking lukewarm coffee. Uh, I remember going up, my mom seemed to go back to the microwave to rewarm her coffee every 20 minutes, and it never got finished and always needed to get heated up because you don't want to drink a lukewarm beverage, so you want to heat it up add some heat to it, but if it gets too hot, if mom just presses quick minute instead of specifying that it needs about 15 seconds, it's going to be far too hot to drink. And what happens if you're given a beverage that is overly heated? One, if you try it, it will burn you and you'll cast it aside. Wait until it cools down. And that's what happens with this harsh zeal. It's like an overhot beverage. So even if you have a good idea, it's presented with a harsh spirit. No wonder no one wants to receive it. It burns them and actually pushes them away from you. Whereas an earnestness that's moderated with a warmth, a warm earnestness is much more palatable. We don't want to be people of harsh zeal. We don't want that in our hearts. But also he writes about selfish ambition, which is actually just one word here. It's the word erethea, which literally means, interestingly, electioneering or partisanship. This is a word that Aristotle used to describe the vying political factions of his day. And this idea of selfish ambition, each party is warring trying to get to the top. Right? People love to talk about the intense polarization in our day, where there's sides uh, fighting against one another, striving for power, um, sometimes even taking low roads in lying and in underhanded dealings to try to get the better of the enemy. And this selfish ambition, James fears, has infected the church. Because you see, sometimes my desires are the same as some other people's desires. But then someone else's desires, they find another group of people who share their desires. And so instead of just you and I having a conflict, it's two groups, it's factions 
in the church, each having their own goals and purposes, each striving and vying for power. It's a self-centered ambition to gain something. And so when you pair this, pair this selfish ambition with this harsh zeal, no wonder that in these churches you're getting division and rivalry and just terrible harshness and unlove towards one another. James says, this is earthly. It's worldly. It's even demonic. Worldliness is not just the sexual immorality that you can feel like you've maybe kept yourself from. The worldliness James is thinking of is worldly factionalism, worldly tribalism that enters even into our very midst and seeks to divide brother against brother, sister against sister. And these all spring forth from that immature heart. Jesus says that all these things that come out of us, they all come from the heart. And so, if you're following this like I am, you wonder, we're in quite the predicament here. Because we all see elements of this in us in our own hearts. We see that we have immature words, we have immaturity in our works, and so we think, what can be done? We need help. And if these come from the heart, you also realize, how can I change my heart? Hearts don't have on-off switches or buttons you can press and just voila. A work of changing the heart, we recognize, can only be a work of the Lord a work of the Spirit. We need a heart renovation, a heart maturation, which can only come from God. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, first, we do need to recognize our sin and repent and turn away from it. James says in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Instead of this self-exaltation, where we strive for power, we need a self-humiliation, where we come under and submit and surrender to the work of God in our lives, desiring his cleansing to turn away from our sins. So if we're recognizing that we've been seeking our will and not God's will, trampling our brethren to get our own desires, failing to show mercy, failing to apply the word, failing to put our words into actions, seeing the complaints and criticisms we have in our heart, we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Repent of our sins. Perhaps you may need to repent specifically to a particular brother or sister. You might have to deal with a particular person that that relationship may be healed. James recognizes this in 5.16. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and is working. Confess your sins against one another to one another, that you may be healed. We want these rifts to be healed so that we can come to maturity. But the beautiful thing here is that 
if we are to be a confessing and repenting people, is that the Lord delights to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. We celebrated Easter last month, and in Easter we're recognizing that Jesus rose from the grave having done a perfect payment for sin, and he is interceding now from his ascended place at God's right hand, constantly presenting his perfect sacrifice to God. And because Jesus is presenting his perfect sacrifice to God, when we are condemned, when the devil accuses us, we can go to God with faith that because we have Jesus as our advocate, that if we confess our sins, he will be faithful and just, not only to forgive us our sins, but cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Repentance doesn't have to be a scary and depressing thing. It's a time to be looking away from ourselves, sinking low that we might look high to Jesus. We recognize and repent. And Jesus has not just brought us forgiveness, but more than that, he has sent us of his very Holy Spirit that he might do that heart-transforming work within us. And so as we repent and recognize our shortcomings, we also look to the Holy Spirit of God for that very life-transforming, heart-rendering power that we need. And so we recognize that God is good and generous and loves to give good gifts to his people. And if he gave us his son, he will give us what we ask. Remember chapter 1, verse 5, where James starts off telling us the solution. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We ask God for this spiritual wisdom that we need to permeate our midst, trusting the goodness of God's character, that he is a generous God who delights to work within us. We fervently ask God for that wisdom, that heart wisdom only he can give, and we continually ask and seek and knock. Why? That we might collectively grow into this vision God has given us for a mature Christian community. And so how might we then summarize what would this look like if we're praying for this wise community together, pursuing good works, pursuing mature words? How might we summarize this picture? I think the perfect summary is James 3, 17 and 18. Perhaps this week, these would be two verses that would be great to memorize. James 3, 17 and 18. If this was stamped on our collective imagination for what we want God to do here at Harvest Church, this is what James says. Wisdom in a congregation looks like. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You're called Harvest Church. Don't you want to see a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by these peacemakers in your midst? Isn't that such a beautiful picture? A church that 
is mature. It's not here marked primarily by the proper and exacting church order or even a growing congregation or busy programs. The marks of the church God wants here is purity, peaceableness, gentleness, an openness to reason, mercy, impartiality, and sincerity. This is the picture. This is the goal to which we want to be striving in our community, which really is our common unity, our common unity together. And why are we pursuing this? Well, this is the sort of community Jesus died to create and form. In chapter 1, verse 17, we're told that of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all his creatures. The work that God has done in bringing new life by the gospel is to produce first fruits, a fruitful people. Jesus told his disciples, I desire that you would bear much fruit. Jesus died that he might redeem a people, but also transform a people. And Jesus himself was and is this perfect picture of wise and mature humanity. And he gave himself for the church that he might have a spotless bride. And by faith, Jesus, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, becomes to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In Jesus, all our foolishness and immaturity is covered. The seed of true heavenly wisdom is birthed in our hearts, but by the Spirit of God, it needs to be cultivated. The wisdom needs to grow and permeate the whole community as we seek to grow up into a mature man, into the measure of the stature of the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a church that reflects the wisdom of God, not only among ourselves, but also before a watching world. We're called to be God's new society that lives by a different way, that doesn't live from the wisdom from below, but the wisdom from above. So let's seek this together with God's help and the Spirit's strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are unwise, but you are wise. We thank you for your wisdom, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to purchase a people for God. We thank you that you have brought us forth by the word of truth to be your first fruits. And thank you, Lord, that despite our many failings, there remains for the people of God a Sabbath rest, an eternal inheritance purchased for us by Jesus. But Lord, you lay such an exciting path before us. You call us to take up our cross and follow you, but to also come to you that we may find rest for our souls, to find that rest that our hearts so need, because you are the fountain of life. In your light we see light. You are the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. And so we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would lead us in spirit-wrought wisdom, that you would cleanse us of our selfishness, our factionalism, our sins, purify our lips as with that coal from your altar, that we would be ready to serve you, to love one another, to serve those made in your image. Lord, that your wisdom would be evident among us by the bonds of love we share, that bond of love which binds everything together in perfect unity, that in everything we would give thanks to you, our Lord, and Savior. So, Lord, we ask for the help of your Spirit. We ask for the encouragement of your Spirit, that you would strengthen the weak knees, 
that you would put strength in every side, that we would, brother and sister together, be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we pray in his name, and all God's people said, amen. Our song of application is a song that's really a corporate prayer. And it's a prayer we're going to pray together where we ask together that the Holy Spirit of God would work much of this wisdom within us. So let's stand and sing. And as we sing, just remember, we are desiring this picture together. Amen. 
People of God, receive now the Lord's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.